0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are um, going to finish this chapter this week. We have um, really been preaching through this as if it is one giant sermon um, because Paul's exhortation uh, in this chapter is his personal example put on display to instruct us in this important matter of preaching Uh, and teaching uh, and thinking about our Christian freedom and how are we to think about that. And our previous messages through this chapter, Paul has been bouncing around between the theme of our rights as well as our restraint of those rights. And the last Lord's Day, we saw Paul take up a a, a third theme, and we saw that in verses uh, 24 to 27, and that is the the race of our Christian life, how we run the race of our Christian life lives. And so uh, we we are coming back to that section this morning in verse 24 to 27. I just want to read it to familiarize us with it again. Paul says, "...do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we in imperishable." Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I want you to notice again what he says at the latter part of verse 24. He says, run in such a way that you may win. This is both Paul's example and it is his exhortation as we look at this chapter. And he tells us what is required. He told us what was required to get the job done. First, it requires running to win, requires exercising discipline in all things. We saw that in some detail in verses 25 and 27. We know that running to win requires knowing our goal and, uh, and he spells that out for us, talking about that imperishable wreath. And then he talks about esteeming the prize. Each and every one of us who are in Christ this morning took a solemn oath that, that at the moment of our conversion, when the moment that we repented of our sins and, and put our faith in Christ, that we took an oath by that grace of God that signified that we were ready to run to win, that we were running seriously, that we were going to run passionately in pursuit of the crown of life. And that oath involved a commitment to exercise self-discipline as a fruit of the Spirit in pursuit of godliness. It was an oath to know the goal, and we hopefully understood what the goal was, and we took a solemn oath in that commitment to Christ to, uh, to esteem as more valuable than anything else that pearl of great price is in fact the gospel message as we heard it we received that and it it is used hopefully to propel us forward in our christian walk you and i need to run the race of the christian life to win and we said last week we ended last week it's we cannot be content to just be on the field we cannot be content to just stumble across the finish line but, um, and, and this is something that we've preached and taught through before, it really anchors our philosophy of ministry, but so what I wanted to do this week is to kind of plow up some new ground. I mean, we've talked about these things, if you've been a part of our church for any length of time, we have, uh, you, you see that it, it, it kind of drives all of what we do, it helps us understand our purpose as a church. But I want us to consider uh, another question this morning, and this phrase, running to win, is... Um, it, it raises an important question, and that is this. What does winning look like? What is it? to to What is waiting for us as Christians at the finish line as we get to the end of our Christian life? Paul uses this imagery of a runner in a race to describe our lives as Christians on earth, but eventually the race will have run its course. And when we get to the end of that race, what is waiting for us? So we have to ask the question, what does winning look like? And be, and even beyond that question of what is waiting for us, Paul's exhortation raises another important question, which is why should we value whatever that thing is at the end of our Christian race? What makes winning worthwhile? These are important questions I think we need to consider, and they're important to answer because they are vitally connected to how we live our Christian life even now on this earth. This isn't some kind of scholastic enterprise where we're just sort of speculating. This has real practical value for our Christian race right now. And it is going to be my contention this morning because I believe it is God's intention in the text that a true and a deepening understanding of our future reward is the rich soil in which the Christian life grows up into maturity. Our living hope as the rich soil of the soul anchors and nourishes our hearts such that we can bring forth lasting fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And I believe Paul sketches out for us this proper view of Christian freedom as he's doing this in the text, and particularly in chapter 9, as he speaks about his personal example, that what lies behind or, or maybe what lies ahead as, as the end of his attitudes and actions is this reward that awaits us as believers. I want you to notice how he phrases certain statements in these verses that we just read. He says he's running with maximum effort, and this is the reason the goal, so that he may win the prize. He is exercising self-control, disciplining his body, making it his slave, he says, so that he may receive an imperishable wreath. He restrains, he says earlier in the chapter, his God-given rights as an apostle and accommodates himself to the consciences of others for the greater progress of that gospel and he says so that he might become if you see in verse 23 a fellow partaker of it so winning the race receiving that imperishable wreath becoming a sharer in gospel blessings that is all the language of rewards And I don't think it's going beyond the text to say that Paul's understanding of his rights, Paul's understanding of his restraint of those rights, Paul's running the race of his Christian life, all are specifically calibrated by a firm grasp of our eternal reward. And so, like we mentioned briefly last Sunday, running to win necessitates knowing the goal and esteeming the prize. And I just want to kind of expand on that this week. I'm convinced that many in our churches don't press on to maturity. Many bring forth very little or virtually no spiritual fruit in their lives because one, they don't understand what the end of the Christian life is, or two, they don't value the prize or both, which is very, very uh Sad thing to have to acknowledge. And without a clear sight of and a delight in the triune God by faith, we will inevitably, inevitably lock our eyes onto the things of this world. We crop God out of the picture and end up focusing all our attention on his gifts rather than the one who gives those gifts, God himself. In a word, we become idolaters. Heaven is eclipsed, and we stumble around in a kind of an odd twilight that's not, qu- not quite darkness, but it's also not quite the full day, and we wither and wilt on the vine. But God calls us to follow him into the light. God calls us to keep our mind, our will, our affections firmly anchored on our living hope. And so future blessing prompts present behavior. And living hope motivates living now in the present in a Christian way. So we must have our eyes, our mind's eye, as it were, riveted on our future reward. That living hope, if we are ever going to make real progress in the Christian life and bear real fruit that remains. And so I just want to ask a series of questions to to frame out our time this morning, this outline Uh, The first question we want to ask and answer is, what is our reward? And the second question is, why is it valuable? And thirdly, we'll end with a a final appeal. So we're breaking it down into three parts this morning. And my prayer for you and for me is that the, the wind of God's Spirit would take the fuel of His Word and that that would ignite for the first time, maybe for some but hopefully reignite for many the fires of our living hope. And so I just want to ask that first question, and that is, what is our reward? What is it that we're running to, to win? What is our hope? What does winning look like when we get to the finish line of our life here on earth? And to maybe help answer that question, I want to ask a, a, another question first, and that is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? You might say, well, the gospel is the is the good news that though we are all sinners and that we're all condemned to eternal punishment, nevertheless, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, he died a substitutionary death, and rose victorious from the grave to pay the penalty for man's sin. And that the message is that all who turn and trust in that work at the cross are justified, declared righteous by faith alone, apart from works in the law. They're forgiven of their sins, and they receive the promise of eternal life, right? If your answer to what is the gospel included those basic components, God's holiness, man's sinfulness, Christ's person and work and a call to faith in that work, then congratulations, you understand the content of the gospel. That's wonderful. But let me ask you a second question as a follow-up. What makes the gospel good? What makes it good news? And you might say by, you might respond to that question in your head by saying, well, I don't have to spend eternity suffering punishment in hell. That's a good thing, right? Or when I die, I can be confident that I will go to heaven. The gospel might be good news to you because death's sting and the fear of death have been taken away. Or uh, it might be good news to you because one day you'll, you know that you'll be reunited with other believers who have already passed, passed on. If you're more theologically minded, you might answer that question of, why is the gospel good? By pointing out that the gospel is good news, because even though we are guilty before God and even though we deserve a, 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 a eternal judgment, nevertheless we can be clothed with Christ's righteousness by His grace and through faith. That that we have been justified. The gospel is good news. You might say through faith in the gospel message, we are forgiven. Of our sins, past, present, and even sins that we haven't even committed yet, and yet, uh, and now we have real spiritual power to obey God from the heart. That we are being sanctified. That that is good news. The gospel might be good news because one day you understand that when Christ returns, our soul will be united to a, a glorified, resurrected body. Like that of our Lord himself, and we will dwell in the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness reigns, and we will be glorified. All of those things are wonderful. And if you answered the question of what, is the, what makes the gospel good news by pointing to any of that, rescue from God's wrath, the hope of heaven, our justification, sanctification, glorification, you would be 100% correct and right You would be speaking truthfully and according to God's word. But my contention is, if that is all you think of when you think about the gospel, you are missing the final aim or purpose of the gospel. The final aim and highest good of the gospel, what makes it truly good news, is not that we are justified. It is not that we are sanctified. It is not that we are spared hells judgment. It's not that we will be re- reunited with loved ones or saints who have already gone before us, or that we won't have to contend with sin or sickness or sadness any longer. What makes the gospel truly, truly good news is that the gospel brings us to God himself. You say, well, where are you getting that from? Well, it's everywhere. It's everywhere in the scriptures. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So that's, that's the gospel, right? That is, that is substitutionary atonement 101. But here's the reason. He died for sins in our place. And here's the reason Peter points out. So that he might bring us to God. Or 1 Peter 2, in verse 25, a few verses earlier, he says, For you, as, as sinners, were continually straying like sheep. This is us before Christ. But now, he says, you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Or, as Jesus prayed in John 17, in verse 24, For us, believers, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, this is what he prays for, that they might be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. See, forgiveness, the turning away of God's wrath, resurrection, the removal of sin's curse, those are all gifts of the gospel. Those are all good and wonderful and precious But they are not its final aim or purpose. Why are we forgiven? Why is divine wrath turned away? Why are we fit with glorified bodies? Why is the curse reversed? And the answer is, those things are necessary for us as fallen and finite creatures to be able to enter into and enjoy the fellowship of God himself forever and ever in the face of Jesus Christ. God Himself is what makes the good news good. Everything else, while it glorifies Him, is a means to that end. So let me ask you another question to help us understand this whole idea of what is our reward. What makes heaven, heaven? What makes heaven, heaven? Because God is omnipresent, He is everywhere present in the totality of His being at all times. So what makes heaven, heaven? Because remember, heaven is created. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. That is when angels were created. That is when heaven itself was created, just like the physical universe that we know and can observe. What makes heaven, heaven? And the fact is that he- what, heaven is a created realm, but it is a created realm permeated with and defined by God's unique presence and rule. Heaven is God's personal presence turned unto, manifest to the creaturely realm in grace and mercy. Put simply, heaven is heaven because God is there. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Let me give you a simple illustration that maybe we're familiar with or makes more sense to you. What makes Air Force One, Air Force One? We all know about the plane that the president flies around in. What makes Air Force One, Air Force One, isn't that it's one particular Boeing 747 distinct from all the other planes in the world. What makes Air Force One, Air Force One, is that it's the plane carrying the president of the United States. If he stepped onto a commercial plane as president, That plane would become Air Force One in its call signal. And his presence on the plane as president makes it so. And the same is true of God himself. What makes heaven heaven is that God is there in in the creaturely realm in a lordly manner. That's the point. The point we're making is that the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. The gospel is a way to get people to heaven to God. Forgiveness, justification, propitiation, redemption, sanctification, glorification, all these wonderful doctrines that we know and herald and and defend, all of them are good news because they glorify God, but they bring us ultimately to God himself. The gospel is good news And it is the good news that God has overcome every obstacle to and made every provision for our everlasting enjoyment of him forever and ever. See, Christ didn't die on a cross to forgive us of our sins so that we would go on treasuring a million other things besides him. And I fear so often, and I'm, I am convicted and I am including myself in this category, that as preachers and teachers of the gospel, we can say many true and exalted things about the gospel and plead with sinners to repent and believe and, and to receive that saving message that they, might, that they might know life eternal. And yet, we do not point people to where the gospel leads, and that is to God, to God himself. And just to help us understand that this is everywhere, all over the Bible, all over the Scriptures, let me just give you a survey of some texts that point to this reality. David, in Psalm 27, verses 4, and again in verse 8, David says this, "...one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, and it's this, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in His temple." And then in verse 8, he says, When you said, Seek my face, David said, My heart said to God, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. See, David's... Think about all the things that David could ask God for. What does he want? What does he ask for? That he would be with God. That he would see God's glory and all of its intimacy and all of its majesty Psalm 63, verses 1 and two: "O oh God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My, thol, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. The end of the psalmist's faith in Psalm 63, it ends with God. The, the terminus of that is God himself. Or Isaiah 40, verse 9, Isaiah says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion. Bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem. Bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. And say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Do you see the connection between the good news and what does that good news point to? It calls the people. It points the people. The end of the good news is the beholding of God himself. And of course, in the New Testament, the sight of the triune God culminates in the face of Jesus Christ. And so John's gospel begins in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory Glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of faith now, God's people saw, but they saw then and we see now God's glory. And we see that glory and that grace where? In the face of Jesus Christ, in the flesh. But like we've memorized and we've reminded ourselves now, We see in a mirror dimly. But then, what? Face to face. The end or goal of the gospel is to bring us to God. We need to understand that. This has historically been known in the church and referred to by the church as the beatific vision or the blessed or happy vision of God. And that... That emphasis on God's the reward of heaven being ultimately God's presence is one that we cannot let go of. It has been over the years um, elevated to such a place that the the physical realities of the future heaven, new heaven, and new earth are lost. But we can't. I think sometimes we can. This pendulum can swing so far back the other way. We're so so captivated by the physical and what new earth will look like and all the blessings of the new our new existence, that we lose track of the reality of what makes heaven heaven and what makes the reward the reward, and that is God himself. It's a truth that that is lost in the shuffle of our earthly concerns. But it's one that should be uppermost in our minds as we run the race because it is the end for which God created us. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He prayed to the Father in John 17, again in verse 24, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory and that you have given me, which, which because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And again, at the end of all things, Revelation 21 after the tribulation, after the millennial reign of Messiah, what is foremost in the eternal state? What is, that, what is the thing that comes out first? In Revelation 21, verse 3, John records, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That's a word picture to describe God's personal presence. The tabernacle, what? That was where God dwelt. And he says, the tabernacle of God now is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Heaven and earth are one. Why? How has that happened? You say, well, what happened? Because heaven is where God is, in his lordly presence. There is a day coming when the veil will be pulled off, and God will reveal himself in ever-increasing glory to our glorified souls like a king on a coronation day, shows himself in all of his royalty and all of his magnificence. This is the heaven of heaven. Yes, we will see angels, and that will be wonderful. Yes, we will see in fellowship with the believers and the saints, and that will bring us great joy. Yes, we will have glorified bodies. Oh, thank you, Lord. Freed from sin's curse. But far beyond all those angels, Blessings will be this. We will see God. And this is our reward. This is what winning looks like for those who run the race of their Christian lives with endurance. This is the crown of life. This is the imperishable wreath. This is the crown of righteousness. This is the unfading crown of glory that are spoken of throughout the New Testament by Paul and others and James and Peter. It is the sight of and enjoyment and delight in God himself. You say, well, God's invisible. How can we do that? We do that in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image, Hebrews says, of the invisible God. So So that is our reward. That is what winning looks like. It is receiving God himself. But a second question we need to ask and answer is this. Why? Why is this vision of God so valuable? Why should we esteem it? And for that, I want us to turn over in our minds for these last few minutes several excellencies of our future reward, this vision of God that the scriptures speak of, this sight of God. I have six in my notes here. So these are kind of sub points underneath our question. Why is this so valuable, this vision of God? First, it is valuable because our sight of God will be a a clear sight, a clear sight. As we said earlier, on earth, we see through the eyes of faith dimly. But through Christ, we'll see God in an unhindered manner, that's what this scripture speaks of when it says we will see him face to face. God will remove the veil. God will display his glory in as far as our finite souls are capable of receiving that revelation, that vision, that understanding. But he will remove it. Now, 1 John 3 2 says that when God appears, we will see him just as he is. Or 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says in the future, we will know God even as we are known by God himself. How are we known by God now? Well, he knows us intimately, clear as, noon, as the noon day. As much as the finite can comprehend the infinite, so our sight of God will be clear in that future day. So it is a clear sight. Secondly, it, our sight of God is excellent and valuable because it will be a transforming sight. A transforming sight. When when the time comes, when that time comes, like we said in 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him. Which is essential because if we are not like him and we were to stand in his glorious presence, we would be consumed. (laughs) So, what happens, think about it, what happens when you turn off on, on, excuse me, turn on a light in a pitch dark room. Everything in the room suddenly is transformed. What was faded and menacing and scary in the dark suddenly is sharp and innocent and clear in the light. And that's how it will be for God's people who see God. Thomas Watson says, uh, as eloquently as I could ever put it, says the saints, by beholding, the brightness of God's glory shall have a tincture of that glory upon them. Not that they shall partake of God's very essence. So he's denying this wrong doctrine that we become God, we don't. But he's saying, uh, for as iron... In the fire becomes fire, yet remains iron still. So the saints, by beholding the luster of God's majesty, shall be glorious creatures, but creatures still. So his point is that our beholding of God, our coming into his presence, is a transformative glory. We will be made perfect, and we will continue to know and understand and be filled up more and more forever and ever. So it is a transforming sight. Second or thirdly, our sight of God will be a joyful sight. It will be a joyful sight. Psalm 16 verse 11, "You will make known to me the path of life, and then David says, "In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever uh, I, I don't mind winter, but think about how joyful you are after a long, dark, cold winter when the warm sun and the clear blue skies emerge in all their springtime glory. That's a, that's a great, I think that, that first day that it's like warm and sunny and the skies are clear, that's the picture. So it will be for the sun of righteousness when he reveals himself in all his glory and blasts away sin's darkness. That's how it will be. I love the word of comfort that Christ gives to the disciples in the upper room. In John 16, and verse 22, he says, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. That wasn't just true of... He wasn't just speaking about what would happen to them after the resurrection. Or he's not just talking about the unspeakable joy of faith. The joy that no one can take away carries forward, I think, in a more perfect and ever-increasing way into eternity. This is, this is our reward. It is, so our, joy, our sight of God is a joy-giving, a joyful sight. Fourth our sight of God will be a satisfying sight. It will be a satisfying sight. We can throw everything in this world into our hearts 20 times over and never be filled up. Isn't that what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes? He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is not satisfied with hearing. In this world, but the sight of God, that's totally different. Psalm 17, verse 15 says, As for me, he's trans- in, in the previous verse, he is, he is contrasting himself with the wicked. I shall behold your face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. God and nothing but God can truly satisfy the soul. Our heads will be so filled up with the knowledge of God. Our hearts will be so brimming with joy in his glorious presence, there will not be any trace of lack or want. So our future sight of God, this glorious reward that awaits us is, it is a satisfying sight. Fifthly, our sight will be a perpetual and unweariable sight, a perpetual unwearyable, that's a hard word to say, <laughs> unweariable sight. When you think about the most amazing things that you've seen in this world, the most sublime experiences that you've enjoyed, let's be honest, it doesn't take long before you become desensitized. It, it doesn't take long before sometimes you get sick of them. Like, you can actually become nauseated by something that's so rich But that never happens with God. That will never happen with God. We can can never become weary of him in eternity. He is infinite. We are finite. The well of his perfections communicated to the creature never runs dry. Jonathan Edwards points this out really um, helpfully in his book uh, The Ends for Which God Created the World. And he points out that just as an eternity of divine wrath will never fully satisfy divine justice. He says, quote, So God, in glorifying the saints in heaven with an eternal happiness, aims to satisfy his infinite grace by the bestowment of a good, infinite, a good of infinite value. And yet, he says, there never will come the moment when it can be said that now this infinite valuable good has been bestowed. Basically, what he's saying is, just as it takes an eternity of divine wrath, and divine wrath is never satisfied, so God's grace to the believer will take an eternity of ever-increasing experience, and it will never fully be satisfied. There's never a point in eternity where you say, okay, I got it all. It will continue to increase and increase, and we will continue to have an increase of joy and experience of the fullness of God forever and ever. On on earth, our eyes grow dim. On earth, our minds give way to frailty as we age and as we get uh, further along in life. We aren't able to enjoy all the things that we once did because our outer man, our outer woman is decaying. Right, Isn't that what Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes? He's like the 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 eyes grow dim and the ears grow weary, right? It's just reality, but in God's presence that shall never happen, ever. Our capacities will continue to be enlarged to take in, delight upon and display more and more of God's glory forever and ever. Lastly, Our sight of God, this reward, will be an immediate sight. When we draw our last breath in this life, or Christ returns, the saints will immediately pass from death to glory. We certainly don't come into some purgatory to suffer divine wrath for a season, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. God has not destined us for wrath. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with him. 1 Thessalonians 5. We don't go into some kind of soul sleep. 2 Corinthians 5 8 teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, we take great comfort and hope in the words of Christ to the thief on the cross when he said, truly, I say to you, today, you shall be with me in paradise. That thief, because of his faith in Jesus, was immediately transported from the cross to the Lord's glorious presence in heaven. And so, it will be with us. So, So why is our sight such a valuable and glorious reward? Because it's a clear sight. It's a transforming sight. It's a joyful beholding and fellowship with God. It's a satisfying sight. It's a perpetual, unweariable, undiminished sight, and it's an immediate sight the moment we step out of this world. So that brings us to a final appeal. First, to those without Christ, you must run into the rock that is Christ. Just as Moses could only see God's glory when hidden in the rock, so you and I can only see and savor God forever and ever if we are hidden in the rock of Christ's righteousness by faith. Only those who are pure in heart shall see God. And if the cloud of your sin isn't removed, by the atoning blood of Christ, then you will never see the son of righteousness. Augustine said that there are many who are content to go to heaven, but they are loath to take the way that leads there. They want the glorious vision, but they turn their backs on the gracious way, the truth, and the life. Don't be that person this morning. Trust in him. Come to him and he will in no wise cast you out. To those who are in Christ this morning, first, you and I should be amazed at this privilege that one day we will see God in unveiled glory. We were children destined for wrath, worms formed out of the dust, and yet, by God's grace, we have been admitted to this blessed sight of God forever and ever. I remember reading Moses' prayer in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, 18, and he says, Lord, show me your glory. Little did he or anyone else understand exactly how superabundantly God would ultimately answer that prayer for his people. Making us sharers of heavenly joy and delight. The heavenly joy and delight that exists within the Godhead itself. Just incredible privilege. Second, Though we see in a mirror dimly, we must keep the eye of faith firmly set on the hope that is before us, our living hope. The writer of Hebrews points out that it was by faith that Moses saw him who is invisible. Psalm 25 verse 15 encourages us to fix our eyes continually on the Lord. And of course, Colossians 3 verse 2, we know well. Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. See, the world wants to leverage God to get more of the world. As Christians, we're called to leverage the world to get more of God. The eyes of faith bring more joy to the believer who's heavenly minded than all the riches of the kingdoms of this world will ever be able to satisfy us with. And that's why Peter could say, as he does in 1 Peter 1: Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. If that is what the eyes of faith dimly experience now, what will that future sight be? And lastly, to the believer, a reminder once again as we come back to the text itself <laughs> run to win run to win enduring every sacrifice and affliction knowing that it will soon give way to that imperishable wreath that crown of life and i think this is this is the why paul says what he says in this chapter This is why he could endure hardship. This is why he could give up his rights. It was why he could do all things, he says, for the sake of the gospel, verse 23, with maximum exertion, because he understood that all the sacrifice and all the hardship and loss was but momentary light affliction that would eventually give way to an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And how would that happen? How does that happen? And 1 Corinthians 4 tells us, while we look not at the things which are seen, but that the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is the manner in which we do that. One half hour in God's glorious presence will make you and I forget every pain and everything every loss, everything. So we don't need to grab onto the things in this world with white knuckles. It's all passing away. It will all give way to something so much greater in the future. And so we must let this blessed vision, this blessed sight of God, carry us full sail through the waters of sacrifice and affliction. This is the point of Paul's example. This is why he and all of us must run in such a way that we may win, that we would receive the prize. And that prize is none other than God himself. 1 John 1, and verse, verses 1 to 3, John entered. Produces this short little letter and he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was manifested to us. He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us and then he says this, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the fellowship that we look forward to. The fellowship of God with his saints forever and ever. God is the end, the highest aim and purpose of the gospel. And our job on earth is to lead others into that future glory, to point them to Christ And to say, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Come to him. Receive God in all of his glorious righteousness, holiness, and live for him. This is is our blessed hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you would choose to love us in this way, to share with us sinners, hopeless sinners, the glorious truth that we can stand in your presence and not be destroyed. And not only do not be destroyed, but that we can live forever and ever and enjoy and see and behold and experience the fullness of your glory for all time. Lord, we don't deserve that. And if we think we deserve it, Lord, humble us and make us remember who we are. I pray, Lord, that this blessed sight would be true of all who are here this morning within earshot, that you would take your word and emboss it on our hearts, that we would run with endurance the race that is set before us, and that we would run hard to you, and that that would empower us to give up whatever we need to give up and to sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice so that we might be partakers, sharers of it, as Paul says. May we do all things for the sake of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.